Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in this episode, I talk to John Gimlet about Madagascar. An island nation off the east coast of Africa, Madagascar has an incredible diversity of unusual landscapes and wildlife, of which lemurs are the most famous for sure, but by no means the only ones. In fact, 90% of its flora and fauna are endemic, found nowhere else in the world. While there are some resorts, much of Madagascar is remote and escapes the influence of modern life, with unique religious and cultural practices – John talks about ancestor worship and the idea that the dead control the lives of Malagasy people, as well as some of the more practical aspects of travelling on the island. We also discuss what travel means when you can't get away during these pandemic times, and as ever we give you some book recommendations so you can explore in your mind at least. So let's get into the interview. John Gimlet is a multi-award winning travel writer. His latest book is The Garden of Mars, Madagascar, an Island Story. Welcome, John. Hi, Joe. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, welcome to the show. So in case people don't know, where is Madagascar anyway? And what are some of the unique aspects? Well, yes, let's place it first. So it's in the Indian Ocean, about 240 miles off Africa, adjacent to Mozambique. But the thing to really get about this place is that it's enormous. It's the fourth largest island in the world. So just to put that in perspective, if you were to lay it across a map of Europe, it would stretch from London to Algiers. And yet it's got a smaller road network than Jamaica. And where there are roads, they tend to get washed away every year. Now, it's unique because it was separated from Africa during the great sort of tectonic shifts of the Earth about 150 million years ago. And then after that, India and Sri Lanka also broke off from it and they floated off to the north. But the plants and animals that you have in Madagascar are really survivors from a much earlier age. So whilst there were once lemurs everywhere, even in South America, now they're really only here and there are 107 species of them. In fact, 91% of the wildlife of Madagascar is endemic. You will only find it here. Okay, so in cross-section, the island looks a bit like a wedge. And oddly, most of the people live right on the very top of the ridge and, uh, and on the sort of steeply sloping sides of the east coast. Why do they do that? Because that's where the water is. And the capital is up there. It's a sort of Shangri-La city, if you like, on a group of islands arising out of the rice and it sits at 3,000 feet. Way over to the south and the west, it gets much drier. And some of the people there, one group I'm thinking of in particular, the Antandroi, really their whole life is a struggle for water. And they'll walk up to 40 miles a day just to get uh, what they need. And in that vast area of the southwest, visitors really only went there for the first time at the beginning of the 19th century. So yeah, it is in a sense a lost world or a 
a real life Jurassic Park. Wow. And yeah, I've seen it on maps. And I was saying before we started recording that I worked there remotely, but I've never been. And I just didn't realise it was so big. (laughs) It's like it it almost gets missed off things that people don't even realise it's there. So would you say that it's more influenced by Africa or you mentioned India? Is it more Asian? Do you know, you've touched on something really kind of important about Madagascar. And that is, who are the Malagasy's? And The answer really is that until you have to go really back 10,000 years, and this island was completely unoccupied. Now, when the first people came, they didn't come from Africa, despite the fact it's so near. They actually came from 3,700 miles away across the other side of the Indian Ocean, from Borneo. And we know that because the language of Madagascar is the same as that of Kalimantan in Borneo. These Asians created a very sophisticated society, growing rice, smelting iron. And it was only much later, in about the 11th century, that Africans uh, started settling along the coast. And that's still the position today. Afro-Malagasy on the coast, Asian Malagasy in the highlands. And by the middle of the 18th century, it's the Asians who dominated after some brutal wars. So what you see around the country is really their rice terraces and their circular forts. And then grafted on top of that came Christianity, introduced by Welsh missionaries between 1820 and 1830. So colonialism only arrived really late in the day, uh, in uh, 1895 when the French came. And it was pretty short-lived until 1960. So you don't really see such strong French evidence there. It still feels like an Asian or African place, despite the fact that, you know, they love baguettes and boulevard and they have gendarme and they drink a little wine and they have boule. There are thousands of uh, Renault Catrelle, but really it's all superficial. Once you leave the town, the empire never really existed. In fact, truth, much of Madagascar still feels very unconquered. And this is a place where disputes are still resolved and they're mostly disputes about cattle, but they're they're still resolved with spears. Mm, the unconquered. I, I love that. But it is in, on, in terms of the French side, because I remember when I spoke to people there, I was, we were speaking in French. That was the language we, we spoke in. So is, is that still spoken in the more sort of official business world? And what about the architecture? Is there a French influence in the architecture in the big city? Yeah, I mean, I wish more French was spoken because it would have made my travels a lot more easy because I can manage a bit of French. But actually, once you get away from officialdom and the city, people don't really speak very much French. I mean, it's the language of government still, but it probably won't be for much longer. A lot of the old colonial names have been changed back in the 70s to Malagasy names. So France is culturally really disappearing from the picture. I say culturally because actually commercially France is still there. You know, a quarter of everything Madagascar sells goes to France and there are still 25,000 Frenchmen living in Madagascar. So in that sense, the French are sort of still there and they fund government and so on. But no, Madagascar's are really their own bosses now and they're, they're just not like anyone else. <laughs> Fantastic. So in the book, you mention an unforgettable journey through, and a quote, the world of Hieronymus Bosch and Middle Earth, which is very evocative. So I wanted to ask you about this emphasis on red, you know, the Garden of Mars and the, the colour of your book cover. Well, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because people have described 
Madagascar in lots of different ways. And you, you mentioned the world of Hieronymus Bosch and so on. But when the first Arab traders came to uh, Madagascar in probably the 8th century, they called it the island of the moon. But that's because they never went any further than the coast. And I always think that if they'd gone further inland and seen the, the greenness and the forest and the, the sheer weirdness of Madagascar, then they probably would have called it the gardens of Mars. And not everybody's liked it. One French geographer describes it as having the shape, colour and consistency of a brick. But I don't really <laughs> think that's fair. There's a, an enormous variety of landscapes. And I think what really unites them all is this sense of, of strangeness. You know, you, you're driving along and there are great orange mansions of mud, boulders the size of office blocks. And I remember going past a brickwork and seeing hundreds of little figures all working half naked in the mud. And then there's this railway that drops through the mountains about a kilometre over, I don't know, only a hundred kilometres. And then, of course, there are the baobab trees. It looks as if they've been drawn by children. And when you get close, they're like enormous towers of stone. And yeah, the redness is everywhere. It's in the river. It's in, the, it's in people's clothes. It colours the entire landscape. I mean, the French were right. This is the Ile Rouge. Mm, I, I actually went to school in Malawi, so I remember the baobab trees there. I imagine it's, that they're similar. They must have come over from, from Africa, I guess. Yeah, possibly bought by the Arab traders. Uh, you know, no one's terribly sure about that, but they are magnificent and they do really well in Madagascar. Uh, huge quantities down in the southwest where not much else can grow. They're, they're great mm. survivors. Mm. And uh, I read about, uh, uh, is it Singhi the, with a TTS, the sort of the shards of rock in this national park? Oh, the Singhi are unforgettable. So <laughs> how do you describe it? It's like if you, if you could imagine a couple of square miles of Gothic spires, cathedral spires, all made of sand, limestone, all packed in together. That's what it looks like from the distance. It's amazing sort of forest of spires. But when you get up close, you can go down inside the spires and down into the grikes and underground rivers and caves. And there's a whole world down there of unique plants and strange creatures. It, it, it's just the most extraordinary environment. And, and much of it's probably never really been explored. Mm. And that area, did did you have to have a special guide or something? Because I imagine that's the type of place you could go hiking in and just never make it out again. Yeah, you you would need a guide to hike around the around the thing. I didn't hike around the thing, and I certainly went in there with a guide. It was it's great. Yeah, generally you're going to need a guide for Western Madagascar because everything else is a language issue. I mean, people do go there by themselves, but you know, and there are cultural issues. This is. This is a land where people think in a very different way. And you really need someone there as your cultural guide, apart from anything else. It's a very special and unique culture. Mm. Well, give us an example of that. So you say think in a different way. What would be a, an example of when you were like, OK, that's just quite different? Well, Malagas is they're a sort of syncretic religion. It's a good starting point. So there's Catholicism, there's Protestantism brought by Welsh missionaries. There's occult, there's Islam. And actually, they're all merged together. One of the unifying themes of their beliefs is, is the idea of ancestor worship and the idea that the dead control their lives. So 
when Malagasis want to plan something, they have to think, what would the dead, our grandparents, do? And the dead are very respected. Their tombs are visited, and in some parts of Madagascar, that bones are actually taken out and paraded around. That's called walking the dead. But, but what, what happens is that the, the Malagasis are really, what they do is determined by the dead and what they think is right. Fumba, this idea of custom, should only do what your ancestors would have been happy with. And that makes it very difficult to, for Malagasis to move around because they can't leave the tomb. It makes it very difficult for them to do anything new because, yeah, you know, would it be right? And it's not just individuals who think like this. Parliament, too, will only do things if they think it's respectful to the ancestors. So it creates a whole different way of thinking. And it can be sometimes difficult to, well, to access that. Mm, that's really interesting. And I was actually just reading earlier about how the continent of Africa is very ahead in mobile technology, in particular Kenya and places like that. So e even though the ancestors might not use cell phones and things, is Madagascar sort of up there with uh, the mobile technology? So if people are traveling, they can still connect? Or is it that the dead affect even things like that? Well, strangely, the dead obviously approve of that technology because technology is doing really well in Madagascar. This is a really poor country. You know, it's a country where you can still eat a chameleon that's been killed with a spear. It, you know, and some people there, even in the capital city, live on a euro a day. But despite all of that, it's got a burgeoning call centre industry. So France and Morocco and various other French-speaking countries are putting their call centres in Madagascar. And the other new industry there is data processing. And Malagasy's are doing really well at that. So, for example, if you buy Marie Claire in France, the chances are your subscription will be managed through Madagascar. Or French Deliveroo, all your complaints will go through Madagascar. So, yeah, the ancestors obviously approve of that, but there's a lot of things they don't approve of. And so, for example, you could find, you could find your flight cancelled because the crew think it's the wrong, the wrong day to fly on. The moon's not right. And yeah, it can get a bit complicated. It's so interesting, isn't it? I, I wonder sometimes if, if because um, I think this happens in other cultures too, where ancestor worship is more common, is that if there was nothing like that in the the oral history or whatever, then of course it's accepted. The problem is the things where there is evidence uh, of that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in Madagascar, there's a whole raft of really complicated rules about what you can and can't do. It's called fad. Or which means, I suppose it translates as taboo. Uh, and they vary around the country a bit, but you've got to be really careful of these. So, for example, in some parts of the country, it is taboo to pass someone an egg, or it's taboo to sing at the table. Uh, and, and, you know, they really believe, uh, it's really believed strongly that these are, will really upset the ancestors if you do these things. I mean, you know, fortunately, some of these taboos are very much to the advantage of the wildlife. So in parts of Madagascar, it's taboo to eat lemurs. Unfortunately, it's not taboo all over Madagascar. But that's great for the lemurs in, in the southeast of the country, because that's what they believe there. So, yeah, it, 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 um, it can get a bit tricky negotiating all that. And it helps to have someone to, well, steer you all through it. 
Mm, interesting. So you've mentioned some of the, well, you've mentioned lemurs. I mean, that's what everyone thinks about Madagascar, although I didn't know there were, what do you say, 107 species or something, which is amazing. Uh, yeah. So what, what are what are some of the incredible or interesting creatures you encountered? Well, I don't know about, about you, but I was brought up on Durrell and, and Attenborough. And, and so I had some, I've always had some familiarity with the animals of Madagascar, but really nothing prepared me for the, the sheer strangeness of it all. I mean, the first thing to know is that apart from the crocodile, Nile crocodile, really nothing is dangerous there, but they are remarkable and almost unique. In fact, of the 170 wild mammals found on Madagascar, only bats are found elsewhere. Everything else is unique. And there's some pretty strange stuff there. Everything weighs under 25 pounds. So it's all quite small, uh, but nonetheless remarkable. So there's this, this thing like a hedgehog. It's not a hedgehog, it's actually no relation, but it looks a bit like one. It's called Tenrec, and it's got 36 teats. And there's another amazing animal, which I, I did come across once. Uh, it was raiding our kitchen when I was uh, visiting a camp. And uh, it's called a fouche, which is spelled F-O-S-S-A. And the fouche is a really ugly creature. It's sort of half dog, half mongoose. It's very, very fierce, actually. Malagasy's treated it with great respect, uh, but it's also, you know, horribly ugly. And then, then there's another really amazing creature called the Indri, which is the largest of the lemurs. And it looks like, I suppose, uh, it's a bit like a sort of a toddler wearing a fluffy pyjama suit. <laughs> And, and what it does is it sets up these barriers of sound every morning. It sets out its territory with these hoots and screams. And it really fills the forest with noise. It's quite eerie, really. And I always think that's rather a weird thing to do for an animal that's really completely defenceless. All it seems to me to be doing is piquing everybody else's appetite. Anyway, it, it's a lovely creature, like, well, like all the lemurs, really. Yeah, and you mentioned spearing a chameleon and eating that, and that some people do eat the lemurs. So, what is the food like on the island? What could people expect to to try? Well, it's going to be a bit variable. You will find French food. That's one habit that has stayed on. You'll have baguette for breakfast in most cities. You'll find spaghetti everywhere. That's lingered on. But once you get out into the countryside, if you're staying in a lodge, and there are plenty of some lovely lodges across Madagascar, uh, Italian and French lodges particularly, really nice. But if you get away from all that and get into Malagasy food, you might be in for a little bit of a surprise sometimes because uh, bushmeat is big. Uh, people will eat whatever's really available. And I've seen lemurs um, that have been roasted. It's a very upsetting sight. And, and also little roasted quails, which are sort of handed around at bus stops and things like that. So, yeah, you can, I'm afraid, expect to see a little bit of the wildlife on the menu. But predominantly, the staple is rice. And there are hundreds of different ways of cooking and eating rice. And Malagas is eat more rice than anyone else in the world per capita. I mean, they just love it. And a day is not complete without rice. A friend of mine says, I cannot sleep. If I haven't had my rice. So look out for lots of rice. Wow. Again, that's the Asian influence, I guess. And is it kind of spicy? You mentioned some of the Arab traders and things. Is, is there the, the spicy side of rice dishes? 
There isn't really, no. I mean, Malagasy's will tell you their rice is, their food is a bit spicy. And they'll say, oh, you know, you've got to be careful here. It's quite spicy. But actually, for the English palate, it's really not very spicy. <laughs> We're more used to a bit more spice on a Friday night at our local tandoor. No, the food is not hot. It's not, if I'm honest, it's not particularly exciting tasting, the uh, Malagasy uh, food. But it's, not, it's, it's nice, but, you know, it's, it's not not what you go to Madagascar for. No, I was going to say, not as remarkable as uh, the landscape and the animals. <laughs> and um, what about alcohol and drinking? Because, of course, if you have a, a French background, uh, there might be something there. Or does that um, interface with the religion in, in some way as well? No, alcohol's tolerated everywhere. I say everywhere. There are Islamic communities who may be slightly less accepting of it. I think down in the southwest is particularly Islamic down there. But elsewhere, you can expect to find a very good beer called Three Horses. Very delicious. Uh, that's everywhere. And then about a third of the way up the country, there's a, a university town called Fianaransu. And the French always loved it. And the climate is just right for wine there. And the wine they produce is actually, it's pretty good. So yeah, you'll enjoy that. And then oh, there are good. some rough, rougher spirits, you know, rum and so on, uh, as you'd expect in a country that produces sugarcane. But mm. yeah, you won't go thirsty. Oh, that's good. And then you mentioned that the there's nothing dangerous in terms of animals except the uh, crocodile. And I was reading in your book that it, when you were in one of the big cities, people were saying you don't go out at night, it's dangerous. But you did and didn't necessarily find it particularly dangerous. So is the country in general uh, a safe place to travel? I think so. I I was often told by Malagasy's, be very careful. And I remember in my in my hotel, the lovely receptionist, they used to set this the same place all the time and, and she'd get this map out and she'd cross off all the areas where she shouldn't where she thought I shouldn't go. By the end of it, she'd crossed out most of uh, Tanner. But actually I never really had a problem. And I felt, well, you know, compared to London or New York or Paris. It's no, it's not really much worse. And actually, when I talked to diplomats, that was their experience as well, that the perception of crime is far worse than the actuality. And they said that they've never really had any problems at all. And I certainly didn't, uh, despite the fact you'd occasionally hear some quite sort of ghoulish stories. Yeah, it's very poor. You have to be careful. But no, it, it's not particularly dangerous. Mm, I know what you mean. I, I would have friends who'd say, oh, how can you live in London? It's so dangerous. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and as, as you know, we just kind of carry on. That's that's what we do. But uh, though that's that's good to hear. Obviously, your book is really packed with research. And so clearly you did a lot before your trip and also obviously when you got back. But was there anything that surprised you or remains very striking in, in your mind that stood out? Yeah, the, the... I, yeah, there are two things really that come to mind. One is this extraordinary capacity for joy that uh, Malagasy's have. And in, the, in that sort of deep down there, they're really inexplicably content. And it, and it may, of course, be that most of them regard this life as really an interlude uh, for the real thing to come. But you know, here they are, I've, I've mentioned it already, they're some of the poorest people in the world. And yet they're stubbornly happy. And that really constantly surprised me. The other thing that surprised me, a bit different really, but the other thing that surprised me is how much history has survived. The, the heat, 
and the and the damp and and so on. You know, I I would go in search of a story, maybe about a fort, and I went down to the east coast, and there was the fort. Uh, built in 1820, out in the jungle, still with 23 British cannons in place. And when you go inside, it's like walking around inside a Georgian warship of 1820. Remarkable. And another time I went to the site of a battle and I knew the uh, Malagasy artillery had been on top of this hill and I climbed up there in the heat and dust. And I got there and scraped away at the dust. And sure enough, there was lots of pottery and belt buckles and all sorts of things. So, so yeah, you know, you scratch the surface and and the story is still there. It was it was very rewarding. Mm. It's interesting as we record this toward the end of what has been a pandemic year. <laughs> you are obviously a great traveller. You've written a number of books, but back in London, you're a barrister. So I wondered, what does travel mean to you? A lot of people, I guess, are travel writers as more of a job, but you have a, a different job. So what does travel mean to you, especially this year in particular? Yeah, it's really difficult doing without travel. I haven't been anywhere since Eastern Poland. Last January, I went for a, a newspaper and to write something for The Spectator. But I haven't let it stop me exploring. And this year, I've been to a few of my favourite places around this country. It's been a good opportunity to re-explore. I've been to Whitby, which I absolutely love in North Yorkshire, and to Lyme Regis and then Hope Cove in Devon. So they're really special places. And I really enjoyed going there and fossil hunting and doing all sorts of funny things. I've also done a bit of exploring around London, cycling off to all sorts of places I just wanted to see, like Grenfell Tower, and then over to Horace Walpole's Strawberry Hill, just to catch up on places that I really ought to know about. I also, I felt I wanted to sort of do something and maybe do something useful. So I joined the, the Met's Police Support Volunteer Scheme, and that involves going around some, some very, very difficult parts of London and joining a team looking for weapons. And it's, it's a, been a really extraordinary experience. Very, very interesting to see how the policing's done, how the world of drugs and gangs operates, and to meet the other volunteers. I mean, fantastic people, Brazilians, Albanians, all sorts of people. And yeah, we do find some knives and maybe, and maybe do a bit of good. Who knows? But yeah, it's been it's been a memorable year and I can't wait to travel again. India, maybe, northern <laughs> Russia, Mozambique. How long have you got, Joe? Yeah, exactly. I'm the same. I'm planning a trip to Japan. It's kind of as foreign <laughs> as possible. But it's interesting because you mentioned London and I did the Pilgrim's Way walk from Southwark to Canterbury, which is something I've always thought about. And it's interesting because I feel like maybe you're similar our default is to get on a plane or to go somewhere different and this year has made me feel like oh well I haven't seen enough of my own country do you, do you think that this period has changed your attitude and will you continue to do more in the UK do you think? I always have I've always loved traveling in this country particularly long distance walking like you you've done the Pilgrim's Way but you know, things like the West Highland Way from Glasgow up to Fort William, it's just a fabulous experience. And the places you stay and the people you meet along the way is just great. And then the Southwest Coastal Path is also unmissable. I mean, I, I sort of feel you should do these things before you think about casting out abroad because, yeah, there's just great experiences to be had here on our doorstep. So although I have done it before, yeah, this year's 
uh, only increase my enthusiasm for it. Uh, but still, I need to get abroad. I need to see what the rest of the world's doing, and I love it. Yes, me too. <laughs> and so do all the listeners. <laughs> That's why we're here. And I actually found that this podcast has been a, almost a mental health this year. As you, you can travel in your mind and sort of imagine these different places. And of course, your book um, has lots of pictures in too, which is really interesting. So apart from your own book, uh, The Garden of Mars, what are a few books that you would recommend about or set in Madagascar? Or just other Ooh. travel books you recommend? Ooh, now, that's a good question. Okay, there's one in Madagascar that really sort of jumps out, really, because it's so odd. And it's it's actually very old. It was published in 1729. And it's a journal by Robert Drury. Uh, and it was probably ghosted by Daniel Defoe. But the basic story is true. And it's been proved to be true. And what happened, Robert Drury was shipwrecked off uh, the coast of Madagascar in 1703 and was taken prisoner by the local tribe and remained a slave of the king and, and various kings around that area for the next 15 years before he escaped, came back to London. And uh, he told this story to Defoe. We think it's Defoe. Defoe's name's not on the book. And actually, this story became our, our sort of reference point for Madagascar for maybe the next 200 years because Drury learned the language. He, 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 learnt all the history and so on. So it's still a sort of guidebook to the area for many, many years. And, and Drury himself died very close to where I work in legal London. And he's actually buried under the LSE's library in what was a churchyard <laughs> there. But it's a great story and really worth reading. But, but that's Madagascar. Uh, a couple of books sort of more generally, which I'd really like to mention. One of my favourite travel books is by an American called Elliot Paul. And it's written uh, towards the end of the, it's probably written about the Second World War or just afterwards. And it's about his time in Paris. It's called The Last Time I Saw Paris. And he, he lived in La Rue de la Houchette, uh, just um, in, central in central Paris. And he got to know all the locals. And it's about what happened to them during the Second World War. And not only is it absolutely beautifully written, sort of every sentence you could reread, uh, but it's also it's very poignant to hear about his friends, particularly his Jewish friends, who, as you can imagine, didn't fare too well during the war. OK, on a completely different note, there's one other book which I love to mention, and that is Eric Newby's Love and War in the, Ap in the Apennines. I know this is a favourite of a lot of people, and I, I put it in there for sheer charm. And at one level, it's a celebration of Italy, and the title really says it all. But I always think at a sort of more profound level, it's a beautifully philanthropic and yet unsentimental work. You know, however miserable the times are and however awkward the place, Newbie's characters are always uh, endearing and, and very often complex. And that's much how I feel about travel that it's more about people than places. You know, I, I think I'd absolutely hate it in Antarctica. I just, <laughs> it, the absence of people would just not do it for me. There's a lovely sort of tail end to that because I did actually meet Eric Newby once in Stanford's. He was walking around with his wife, Wanda, who's the girl he meets in the book. And I managed to say to him that his book was one of my favourite travel books. And to my surprise, he blushed. 
as if no one had ever said that to him before. <laughs> it was a lovely moment. It's just great. Oh, lovely. And we should say, uh, if people don't know, Stanford's is the famous travel bookshop and definitely somewhere you have to visit in London. And uh, there's one in Bristol near uh, where I am. I'm sure there's some others in the country. But yeah, it's a, a must visit place, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's it's great. First port of call when you need your maps. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I was going to ask you, how is the literary scene in Madagascar? Are there Malagasy writers who are coming into translation or did, w- did you find bookshops in the main cities? Books are really tricky in Madagascar. It, 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 you know, it's so poor that the opportunities for, for publishing are very, very limited. Um, Obviously, Malagasy literature in Malagasy is inaccessible to me. This is a really difficult language. The language is so difficult that a lot of diplomats who go there are excused from learning it. And that's very rare. Usually, you know, our foreign office insists that that our diplomats learn the language, but they don't in Madagascar. It's just (laughs) too tricky. Mm. So the the local literature is difficult. But I did come across and read uh, books about Madagascar in French by people who, uh, by French people who either live there or by Malagasy's writing in French. And in fact, I did, I met a lovely novelist who runs a hotel. She writes under the lovely name of Madame Inc. It's a great oh, name lovely. for a writer, I think. But <laughs> she lives over in Belle-sur-Mer and she lives in this village where they make schooners. I'd really recommend anybody goes to Belle-sur-Mer and uh, see what goes on there and see Madame Inc. and read some of her wonderful books. Fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online? Okay, well, I'm on Facebook and I uh, will be posting more and more bits and pieces about Madagascar uh, from January onwards, from 7th of January, launch date. But I tend to to post pictures and little extracts about travel on my Facebook page. I also have a website. I'm afraid it gets a bit out of date, but it is there. And as for the books, well, they should be in usual places, Waterstones, Hatchards, Daunts and Stanford's and more broadly on Amazon and I hope elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. That was great. Joe, it's been a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.